Hello and welcome to the second podcast of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and I'm joined once again by Dr Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm. Good afternoon Mark. And since today's discussion is going to revolve around the constitutional debates that created the United States of America, we thought we'd get in a proper bona fide American and international scholar who just so happens to be an expert on the revolutionary era. A big welcome to our fellow tutor and Buffalo native, Jane Judge. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, today I kind of want to split the podcast into two parts. First, we're going to pick apart the key debates that surrounded the creation of the Constitution. Um, And in the second half, we're going to kind of look at how those debates are even relevant to today and how the Constitution still, and even the Founding Fathers, remain very relevant uh, to modern-day America. So, Malcolm, I'm going to be terribly rude to our, our guest, and I'm going to come to you first. I mean, the... Last podcast, we finished on the, the introduction of slavery um, to the American colonies in the 17th century. You, and I, I quote said, it led to problems for the creation of American democracy. So here we are, 1789, the formal creation of American democracy. Care to justify your statement? Can I say no? No. Uh, <laughs> the, the problems for the creation of American democracy kind of inherent within the way that the Constitution is put together and central to this, following on from our discussion last week, is the question of slavery. Uh, Now slavery, as a student of the Constitution will know, is never explicitly mentioned within the Constitution, but it is addressed, particularly Article 1, Section 2, right at the very start of the Constitution, uh, where they talk about, if you can cut through the language, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, so referring to population of the states there, which shall be determined by adding, adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, so referring to indentured servants there, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. And what that three-fifths refers to is slaves. And there they are talking about counting slaves as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of the electoral population, for representation uh, in the nation's capital. So they don't directly address slavery, but slavery is in there. And this comes about because of a series of compromises that have to be made during the creation of the Constitution. Compromises between slave states and non-slave states, big states, small states, rich states, poor states. North, Middle, South, you know, geographical divisions, all that kind of thing. So there's all sorts of problematic compromises that have to be gone through in order to achieve this constitution for the United States. So I think that's where slavery creates problems for American democracy because they have to address that when they're forming the constitution of this new nation. Yeah, and just to just to kind of come to you, Jane, quickly. Um, so it's Article One, Section Two. We're only on and. At this point, so early in the document, we've already disavowed the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> like, I mean, this, you pretty much, Jefferson goes, all men created equal, and here we are, so early in the document, and they've already pretty much explicitly said, well, three-fifths isn't equivalent to five-fifths. So, care to defend your, the land of... The land of... of oh, your native land, yeah, um, that's the one. Well, I think, um, I mean, ultimately you're right, and for a a 20th and certainly 21st century audience, um, that's exactly the reading that you would take. What your question would lead an 18th century or American um, scholar of you know, the early republic or even the revolution to, 
go back to would be the Declaration. Jefferson's point, all men are created equal, is not to be read. He doesn't write it the way we read it. Meaning, when he says all men are created equal, first of all, he's talking all white men, specifically. He's also talking mostly all white men who are allowed to vote. Um, so there's that element of it. And then there's also the part that that's kind of rhetorical flourish. The real reason for the Declaration of Independence, when it's written, is to declare to the rest of Europe and to Britain that the United States are becoming, well, that they will become the United States in declaring their independence from Britain. Obviously, they're not the United States yet, they're British colonies. But the statecraft is actually the ultimate point of the Declaration when it's first made. It's not until the 19th century and late in the 19th century, with the rise of abolition, with the rise of the women's rights movement and Seneca Falls in 1848, rewriting the Declaration of Independence, that there's much more emphasis on all men are created equal. So to say that the constitutional debates completely fly in the face of the Declaration is to read the Declaration ahistorically. Okay, and so, so if, if you're someone reading Jefferson's Declaration back then, do you get that? Do you read all men are created equal and you know what he's saying? Like, yes. So you completely understand it. That's good to get that way in established. I mean, so now that we've got the slavery elephant out of the room, because we talked enough about that in the last podcast, um, I'm going to come, come back to you, Jane. I mean, so it kind of focus on this simple question. I mean, why do the new colonies need a constitution anyway? I mean, you look at Great Britain, you know, conquering half the globe and about to embark on the Industrial Revolution without a jot of ink blotting any British parchment. And that applies still to this day. I mean, is there a debate in histori- over historiography over why the US need a constitution, or is there a consensus on this matter? Um, I think as far as the historiography is concerned, there's a fair amount of consensus. Um, because the reason essentially comes down to many of, well, one of the main reasons for the revolution, which is that Americans, or those who are now Americans, now that we're talking about the 1780s, um, the British colonies in the, the 13 seaboard North American state, uh, colonies, they've changed the idea of sovereignty. They no longer accept virtual representation. And that's a symptom of a larger change that they've made, which is they now conceive of constitutional government and politics differently from those in Britain. So that it becomes a question of they have now essentially come together and decided, slowly but surely, there's, there's become a consensus in the colonies and for the Americans that what you need is a government that lays out exactly who it represents, exactly what it does, and exactly how that all works. So in order for that to be laid out, quite literally, you need a written constitution. And is this uh, a reaction to the unwritten nature of the British constitution in that there maybe is a certain sense within the colonies, and please correct me uh, if I'm wrong in this, that an unwritten constitution that's based on sort of statute and precedence and all this kind of stuff can lead to tyranny. Exactly. It can lead to this over, overweening kind of power of the king, for example, that kind of thing. And this is one of the requirements that trying to avoid tyranny yeah. uh, within this no. new state. You're absolutely right, Malcolm, because one of the things that comes up is when they, in, during the revolution, when they say, we have the rights of Englishmen, one of the counter-arguments to that is, show me the rights of Englishmen. Enumerate for me the rights of Englishmen, and then show me why Parliament specific, right, rather than, and they don't have a document they can go to. And this will actually go into kind of what I assume we'll talk about later, which is the Bill of Rights and the need for a Bill of Rights. One of the arguments for that is, 
you need to write these things down because the revolution taught them that when it's not written down, you get tyranny. I mean, to put, put Malcolm's question even more simply, I mean, if, because so much of what seems to come out of a, you know, revolutionary American, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a reaction to what Britain's doing because, you know, Britain's a bad guy now. If Britain had a written constitution, do you think America would have gone, well, we don't need one? Or do you... Or that's getting into the real fair <laughs> counterfactual history. I'm, I'm not. Well, this counterfactual history serves a good purpose at the point to yeah. illuminate what's actually going on. Yeah. But that's almost. I mean, you need to go down the road of being a science fiction author like Harry Turtledove. <laughs> would have happened if uh, kind of thing. So I'm not sure how much purpose that's. Because back at home in Britain, regardless of whether the unwritten or written nature of the constitution, when it, the revolution kicks off. The vast majority of people in Britain don't have any rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no political representation for m- major cities in the north of England. Uh, Manchester and all that kind of thing have no MPs. And that only gets resolved much, much later after the Constitution in the US is devised in the Great Reform Act of 1834. Sorry, 1832, I should say, not 1834. Uh, but that only gets resolved in the Great Reform Act. So in Britain, there's this absence of representation. So I don't want to belabor that point because it's not too germane. But you know. but, it, but it is germane, and I, it, it does get to actually a really good piece of historiography on this. One, one fabulous book that's been written on this by Edmund Morgan, which is um, Inventing the People. And it's about uh, the idea of popular sovereignty and that it stems from um, the Glorious Revolution and, and English political thought in the, um, in the 17th century but that it gets changed by the nature of the colonies in America. And the things that you're talking about, Malcolm, with that eventually Manchester and parts of England that don't have representation will agitate for it, is because they're in turn influenced then by the American use of popular sovereignty. Could we just, I think it'd be useful for, for those who are listening, when, when we talk about this term, popular sovereignty, which will come up again and again in mm-hmm. American history, particularly into the 19th century, what do we mean when we say popular sovereignty? Well. In, in its broadest, simplest term, it means that the sovereign, so obviously the sovereign of, of a, in a political system is the person that wields the authority. Popular sovereignty is the idea that the person that wields the authority is actually the people. Now, it's not the idea, it's not this, you know, I don't want to make it in a historical sense of democracy in terms of, it's not the idea that the people get to rule and they get to decide. What popular sovereignty is in the 18th and early 19th century is the idea that those in government, those in power, get their authority, not from God, it's not the divine right of kings, but they get their authority from the people. So it's popular sovereignty in that sovereignty rests with the people. So it's so governing by the consent of the government. Exactly. As opposed to some higher power, as you pointed out. Exactly. Yeah, and to, get, and to kind of move this along by focusing on, you know, those sovereign people and the, you know, the people that are being governed. So say you are like a common man or woman, you know, you're busy working your small farm like a good little Jeffersonian or you're churning the wheels of commerce. You did some, love those small farms. Uh-huh. And a textile mill that would make Alexander Hamilton delighted. I mean, are you affected at all by the Constitution? This is perhaps even before the Bill of Rights is added, you know, because obviously that has very direct com- consequences. But... I mean, is this just an elite uh, meeting and an elite document that emerges from it from a bunch of elite men that have little touch with actually more like you know everyday Americans? Well, Charles Beard would argue yes. You know the economic argument of 
this is all just done to benefit. It's wonderfully cynical. The, the, I love the, it. <laughs> the, the pre-existing, you know, power elites who have the the reins of, of wealth and power and all that kind of thing. And the constitution just merely, I'm paraphrasing Beard horribly here, but just manages to consolidate that. I think Beard deserves horrible paraphrasing. <laughs> um, but but ultimately, Mark. I mean, the first part of your question, the simple answer is yes, because it is you know white men with privilege who write this document. It is created by elites. To say that they're completely out of touch is perhaps taking it too far for some of them. Some of them, no doubt, are. However, others are, you know, have risen from very, I don't want to say menial positions, but they're, you know, not all of them were governors at, at some point. Not all of them. I mean, for some of them, this is the only time that they're ever involved in government. Unfortunately, no specific delegate comes to mind at the moment. That would be fabulous. <laughs> um, but there are delegates who this is their one and only participation directly in government other than voting. Um, so it's not completely the elites. But the, the, your bigger question about how does this affect you know, that, that person working in a textile mill or um, a good little Jeffersonian farmer um, is to, to answer the question about the ratification process. Because, yes, the, con I mean, the Constitution is created in secrecy, even, right? I mean, they have to shut up Benjamin Franklin and ask people not to take him to the pub afterwards <laughs> so that he won't gab about what's going on. Because they were sent to Philadelphia to rework, to kind of work with the Articles of Confederation. They're not supposed to create a new Constitution, but this is what they do. So then they have to get it ratified. And when you get to the, the ratification process, what ends up happening is each state has its own convention. And this in and of itself, the very fact that there are conventions, speaks to that Edmund Morgan book that I spoke about, the, this popular sovereignty idea. Why can't it just be the state legislatures? right? Why can't you just send this out to the different state legislatures and have them decide, yes, we'd like to be a part of this union. No, we don't. Yes, we'd like to ratify this constitution. It's because Americans have come to believe in popular sovereignty so much that they cannot have the people who will remain in power and enact those laws write the Constitution. They have to elect new members, new people, who will go and decide on the Constitution, state by state. And this ratification process, I'm given to understand, this is quite a lengthy, involved, and often controversial, argumentative process, not just within the states themselves, but between the states. Oh, yes. what, I mean, what's the overall terrain of these debates that are taking place about ratification? Well, that's, it's, a long, it's a long answer <laughs> as really, well. Really? I've never been um, But yeah, and in fact, to point out, I mean, one thing that, um, I mean, we're sitting here, Mark, you've, you've told us that we're in 1789. 1789 is, is the adoption of the Constitution, but it's actually finished being written in 87. So it's a two-year process. You're right, Malcolm, it's very long. I mean, part of that, of course, is due to the fact that they don't have internet and they can't tweet each other their results. They have to wait for horses to tell them whether or not um, one state is ratified or not. Um, but, and this gets us into a little bit of the, the Federalist Anti-Federalist debate, which I don't want to, to hijack the question of ratification with that quite yet. Um, but it, it comes down to localities. I mean, one thing that you need to remember is it's not 13 states and end of sentence. It's 13 states, each of which is fighting their own internal battle, each of which is possibly in the process of writing its own constitution. I mean, Philadelphia 
is having a, a debate about the federal constitution and the Pennsylvania constitution at the same time, which must have been ridiculously confusing for the people trying to you know, report it. Um, but so one of the things you need to look at is what's going on in each state. Okay, I mean, like, talking horses aside, as you just implied they had in the 18th century. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot, I think it's Lance Banning that says, that, you know, the, the Constitution, the ratification is just a bundle of compromises. And to me, that sort of sounds like, I don't know, is he saying that in a negative or a positive way? Because to me, it doesn't, surely a bundle of compromises is sort of a good thing, you know, it, it doesn't have to be some pure ratification process where everybody agreed, you know. It comes comes into the question: What were they going to do? Mm. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, suddenly Massachusetts is going to pull back a curtain, reveal a giant standing army, and say the Constitution will go our way. <laughs> you know that that's that's not going to happen. It's because this, the former colonies are quite disparate in terms of you know geographical location, population, their the position of slavery. But also and government. And also the form of government as well. Yeah. And the personalities that are con controlling forms of government. Because the, the constitutional debates are kind of interesting because you get these different figures from all these different parts of the former colonies. And these guys have, and I say guys because there are no women involved in this process, radically different points of view. Uh, you, you look at the difference between, for example, off the top of it's like Charles Pinckney, Kind of figure from South Carolina, from South Carolina, and then everyone's favourite person involved in the Constitution, Governor Morris, uh, with his sexy wooden leg, with his sexy wooden <laughs> leg and his appetite for life. I think is the best way we can describe Governor Morris. Absolutely, uh, voracious appetite. A voracious <laughs> appetite for life. Uh, so it's you know it's an incredibly diverse, complex set of interests and ideas and personalities that are going towards me, and that you know I think you need to point quite clearly carries on into the ratification. Well, as well. And the ratification debates also are the perfect way to think about those differences. I think sometimes it becomes quite difficult to think about the Constitutional Convention and the actual creation of the Constitution and keep all of those differences in mind. But one way to, to keep them at the forefront and yet discuss the pieces of the Constitution that one may or may not want to be thinking about is the ratification debates because they're incredibly different. In Massachusetts, you have a history of, first of all, from their Puritan days, small town meetings, where everybody gets together and literally votes. Right? This is and you know this is part of the reason for the change between virtual and actual representation, which is why all these things are really you know kind of intertwined. But in Massachusetts, when they get the Constitution, every town expects to get a copy, to be able to debate it, and then to send their recommendations quite literally first to Boston, and then they expect Boston not to just consolidate all of those into like, well, this is one main bullet point that everyone in Massachusetts kind of seems to agree on. They expect Boston to forward their exact copies with all of their exact notes on to Philadelphia, and they expect those to be taken into consideration at the editing, if you will, rather than the drafting of the Constitution. So Massachusetts is basically the most high maintenance of all, all, of, all of the colonies at this point. Yeah. Well, but she's also the most democratic, and in part because she's gone through this process before. Massachusetts um, accepts their own constitution, and well, ratifies and puts into effect their own constitution in 1780, because in 1779 uh, they try, and it's a constitution created by the legislature, and the towns all come back and say, absolutely not. The legislature's just created a constitution that then oversees the legislature. No, we want a constitutional convention 
we want a brand new constitution, which is then penned by John Adams. So Massachusetts knows what it's doing when it comes to the ratification. Other states don't, and that's where you get a real disparity in the ratification process. And it's not just a small part, that Massachusetts constitution is quite a big influence on the drafting of, it the, is. of the final constitution. It is, yes. And it is, to this day, the longest standing, still in use, written constitution on the planet. Okay, so um, moving away from uh, mass holes and moving back to, to Philadelphia <laughs> then, uh, we've just earned ourselves an explicit rating on the iTunes store now. Uh, coming towards the end of the session, I kind of wanted to discuss the role of the, the anti-federalists, you know, the, the, the guys, the, well, I mean, they weren't all at Philadelphia, obviously, you know, there's a lot of anti-federalists weren't in atten attendance, I guess. But, you know, and I want to kind of focus on two of the main historiographical works that kind of came out here, uh, just kind of quickly. And, you know, on one side of the debate in terms of the anti-federalists, and obviously these were people who opposed the Constitution, um, and on one side we have Celia Kenyon, who believes, like, Charles Beard's argument was a load of nonsense, you know, um, you know, there was nothing really virtuous in anti-federalists, they were, quote, men of little faith, you know, who were elite, backward thinking. That's pretty scathing. Um, and on the other hand, but you know, you have Sal Carnell, whose work I quite, I've quite enjoyed, as he kind of uses Carlisle riot to show that actually anti-federalists weren't just one big group. Yes, you had these elitist men of little faith, but they were also these what he terms backcountry anti-federalists, concerned with the kind of the, a new aristocratic order a la Britain was being created. I mean, who do you kind of find more convincing on this argument, Jane? Well, that's the beauty of it, Mark. You don't have to have one or the other. Mm. Um, they complement each other quite nicely. Now, Beard is not convincing. Let's just let's throw Beard right out. Really? Yeah, really. I love Beard. Um, well, <laughs> maybe it's a female thing because I can't grow one, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to throw Beard out the window. But, I mean, Cornell's argument is actually much more complex. I mean, obviously, whenever you sum up one historian's point of view, you're never going to get it, um, even if you've devoted an entire podcast to solve Cornell. But it's not just that he sees... Um, anti-federalists um, in, in the backcountry, there's also, he terms them elite anti-federalists who want one thing, and then, um, I can't remember his name for the other anti-federalists, but then there's this lower group of anti-federalists, if you will, sort of like, um, you know, everyday anti-federalists who want another thing. The elite anti-federalists wanting a more narrow government, right, because that's one thing that we need to remember. It's not that the anti-federalists don't want a federal government, they're not called anti-federalists by their own choice. They're called anti-federalists because those who decide to be federalists, and originally it's a term that everybody gets to use, mm -hmm. but those in the Madison camp decide federalist is a positive, they're going to take it for themselves. They call the others anti-federalists as um, libel, right? This is meant to be an insult. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it's ahistorical to call them anti-federalists. To say that there, were no anti or there weren't a lot of anti-federalists in attendance at the Constitution is incorrect as well, because many people coming out of the convention don't like it and didn't vote for it, we have to remember. It's not unanimously adopted at the convention itself. And then there's this idea, again, going back to what, what Cornell does with these elite versus um, popular anti-federalists. So the elite anti-federalists want a more controlling government. They want it more strictly defined because they're aristocrats. Well, not aristocrats. There are no aristocrats in the States yet. Um, they're landed gentry, if you will. Um, and they are concerned with stopping democracy, and they don't want a tyranny of the populace, right? They don't want that mob rule um, that now has happened in France, right? We've seen it happen. It's starting in 1789. It's just coming to the fore. They're terrified of this. 
On the other hand, you have the popular anti-federalists who want it to be more democratic. So you have anti-federalists of both stripes who don't like the Constitution because they think it's too strong and who don't like the Constitution because they think it's too weak. Which is why Cornell then, I think, is really just an underpinning to anyone else in terms of the historiography. But ultimately, the best person to read is Pauline Mayer and her book, conveniently called Ratification, The People Debate the Constitution. And what she does is she goes state by state and looks at the, the individual constitutional conventions or ratification conventions and she talks about the different localities' reasons for having more or fewer anti-federalist arguments, why they would be looking at an elite, why there might be, because there is also this divide between um, the coast, where there's the merchant elite, and then the back country, where you have people concerned with things like Indians. So there's also a, an east-west divide, aside from the north-south middle, that you get as well. Um, and she's much, I mean, she, Pauline Mayer is absolutely fabulous on this, and this, the Cornell point that there is more than one anti-federalist underpins that. So he doesn't become the antithesis to any other historiography. Saul Cornell gives other historians a new platform from which to talk about anti-federalists and federalists. And, uh, I mean, that's reflecting purely on the historiographical point there. Essentially, you bring up Pauline Paul Mayer, the late, great Pauline Mayer. Like and great. Emphasis on great. <laughs> yes, very much the emphasis on great. But she also uh, wrote her book, correct me if I'm wrong, American Scripture. Yes. Is that the, the book? And yeah. that, that reflects on, this is I mean, purely an additional little point, but that very interestingly reflects on the the sacred nature of the Constitution, the Declaration, and all that kind of thing. That's, I think, worth students looking at that as well for, for that particular viewpoint on these kind of like founding documents of the American. Yes, I mean, that book is much less about the Constitution and focuses more on the Declaration of Independence. But it would, if you read her two books next to each other in conjunction, mm -hmm. and they're actually, they're, they're great to read because they're not written for a purely academic audience. So they're not painful to slog through. They're actually fun. Are you implying that academic books are painful to slog through? Jane? I am. I'm not even implying it. I'm go, ahead, go ahead and see it. Especially Charles Beer. <laughs> well, I mean, just the... the you, you you touched. I think you brought you brought up the French Revolution there, and that as a kind of context. And as the last question before we kind of move into the the present era, it's you know since we love putting things in a global context here in American history too, Jane, I was just wondering if you know do you happen to know of any other revolutions by any chance that took place in the late eighteenth century, and if those revolutions resulted in similar constitutional debates? Well, it's funny that you asked that, Mark, because I'm just finishing off a PhD on a revolution that happened in Belgium, of all places. I didn't um, know that. That is a remarkable bit of foresight. <laughs> <you're talking> <laughs> um, but one thing that, that is interesting is that, no, they don't have the same level of debate because there is no underpinning popular sovereignty belief on the continent yet. You don't have this idea that you need to be consulting the people before you create a constitution. It is perfectly acceptable that men that are part of the ruling elite, i.e. they're part of the estates government, or if you were to translate that to the American colonies come states, the assemblies, it's perfectly acceptable, perfectly legitimate in Belgium in the 1780s and 90s that those men would lock themselves in a room, not consult anyone else, come out with a new constitution, and that the rest of the country would just accept it. So what's going on in the states is actually quite remarkable. And it actually moves things forward in terms of political and constitutional thought, which is why you get people who write on constitutional thought more generally, 
stopping and writing whole books and articles on the American constitutional debates because they are fascinating. And does the, the American constitution itself, does that have influence in, for example, the French or Belgian context when those revolutions are taking place, the document itself? It doesn't, it doesn't. It's too late for the Belgians. Right. Um, they adopt it, I mean, I, again, this time it's not talking horses, it's talking ships. You need to <laughs> wait for news to get across the Atlantic. Um, but interestingly enough, the Belgians, for their constitution, copy the Articles of Confederation, which are the failed articles, the failed government that the constitution is meant to rectify. So, so maybe for the first time here we have Amer you know, the American colonies and now the United States of America justifying the term the New World. Because then the day when they got there, there was nothing new about it. There was people living there anyway. But here you actually have them leading the world and perhaps offering a new route forward. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And they're gonna. I mean, if if you, if anyone does British history and will know about you know the reform, the, the um, agitation for reform in England and in Scotland at the end of the seventeen eighties and nineties for constitutional reform in Britain, that's informed by the debates going on in the states. Okay, so now just to to kind of leap forward into 21st century America, um, where the Constitution is undoubtedly still incredibly relevant. I mean, I want to jump straight into the topic that I think, you know, any time you, you maybe talk to, under, I think any class I've ever taught of undergraduate students, the one, the first thing they always kind of mention when you ask them about perceptions of America, you know, about 90% of the time is gun rights. You know, they just can't get their head around why Americans are allowed to just carry guns. You know, in some states, well, they know you can walk into Starbucks with a gun in some place. And I mean, why is it a valid argument or is it a valid argument for an American politician to cite the Second Amendment of the Constitution when they're defending this? And I mean, that's not just a right-wing Republican argument. You know, President Obama will say, you know, you know we're not going to take away your Second Amendment rights. So is this valid? Or, and if it is, so why is it valid? Well, I think you've got to go. What did you're going back to? Kind of, almost you want to take it this kind of intentionalist kind of approach. What you know? What did Madison mean when he wrote you know uh, the Constitution? And what did the framers of the, the Bill of Rights mean when they kind of like framed all these kind of ideas? And I would, and this is purely a personal point of view, I would argue that the debates over gun rights fundamentally misunderstand the context of the time in which this stuff was being written. Perhaps because willfully so. Perhaps willfully <laughs> so, sometimes just out of uh, you know, simple misunderstanding or not being aware of the history. But the fact that America, the United States, as a new nation, was still under threat. There was, and you, know, you guys will correct me if I'm wrong, still a, a sense among some people you know, America might be threatened by Britain again. Mm -hmm. You know, Britain could come back. There are other kind of global powers who are around the fringes. Spain is still Spain in, is still in, in, in the Florida. Florida. Yeah. And this sense that, and there's also a whole debate going on over standing armies and all that kind of thing as well. So, how do we defend America? Well, we make sure we have a well-regulated militia, and a well-regulated militia is almost like you know, what's the modern equivalent, the National Guard or something. Mm -hmm. That's what this, I would argue. This amendment is looking at is having an, an army, but a non-standing army, in order to defend the nation against external aggressors. It is not saying you have the right to carry a fifty-caliber sniper rifle around you. Mostly because they hadn't been invented yet. True. But, yes. True. But, 
Um, but you're, you're missing out on, on one other major threat, which is more important than Britain or Spain, which is the Native Americans. Of course, of course. On the Western saying. frontier. And this, again, this yeah. gets into the divide I talked about, um, East and West. On the Western frontier, they don't, they're not as concerned about trading rights. Now, that's not to say that they're not concerned at all. They understand that they need to be able to sell their wares to the rest of the world. And in order to do that, you have to have you know, mechanisms in place to have treaties, trade treaties, with other countries. You have to have all of those things um, delineated. But one thing that they're more concerned about is Indian raids. And this well-regulated militia and the right to bear arms being any individual person, whether you're officially in a militia, meaning you've got the uniform or not, is because if you're living on the frontier and you're not allowed to own a gun, you have a very real concern that you're going to be killed by Indians and wild animals. But they're more concerned well, about... Well, but how, how, did, how, did, how, did, how did slaves figure into this? Because, I mean, sure, that in the South especially, there was like constant fear of slave insurrection, no matter how irrational it was a lot of the time. Like, does that figure into it as well? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it does in terms of the militia in the South, because what, what that allows is, um, it allows the large white planters in the South to give poor white men a reason to feel better than the slaves, because in many cases, their lot in life is sometimes even worse, right? They don't have a roof over their head necessarily. They're not being given food and clothing by someone else. Not that I'm saying that slavery is good because it provides those things for you, but I'm just talking about that materially, some of the white people in the South were more poor in terms of the things that they actually could put on their body, clothing-wise, than some slaves. And by allowing militia to roam the countryside looking for runaways and be armed, you give a sense of supremacy, and I use that word deliberately, <laughs> to some of the dis enfranchised, not in the sense of the vote, you know, the vote, but disenfranchised in the sense of their material being, those poor white people have a reason to feel supreme in regard to slaves. So there is an element of slavery there that can be very, uh, very poignant, frankly. Jane's comments on that, the Second Amendment, are much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> right, so... To move on then away from the actual document and onto the founding fathers themselves, who, I mean, correct me if you think if you can think of someone straight off the bat, you know, the, perhaps the most deified historical figures of the past five hundred years, is it simply the fact that the U.S. has risen to be like inexorably since the Constitution was written almost to become like the preeminent world power in this kind of post Cold War age? I mean, you can debate China if you want. Um, that has led to these kind of founding fathers being imbued with such great foresight and wisdom. You know, is that is that the main impulse that's going on here? You know, if the U.S. declines, do they sort of all of a sudden become you know less imbued with such wisdom? I know I'm getting near your counterfactual territory here, Malcolm. So. Uh, but I mean, what, what do you think on that? I mean, do you think it's a lot to do with what the US has become that has made them so special in history? Well, I mean, it, it, there is a sense throughout American history of the sense of American exceptionalism. And I think the, the founding fathers fit into that sense of exceptionalism. They were an unparalleled. I mean, let's not mess about. There were some remarkable figures involved. Uh, in the creation of the Constitution and the creation of the United States, some incredible intellects 
and political thinkers. We're back to Governor Morris again. And philosophers. <laughs> well, he was a great drinker, if else. Uh, but I mean, there are some genuinely remarkable figures of international standing uh, involved in this. And it's understandable why they become, you know, deified. But part of it fits into this kind of like idea of American exceptionalism, the shining city on the hill that America stands ahistorically outside of history. It's something unique and different and never been seen before. And in many ways, I think as Jane has more articulately pointed out, the creation of the creation and ratification of the Constitution, because this was something new. It was something genuinely different. This was this new exercise in popular sovereignty. And those who created the means for that to take place, obviously they're going to be kind of like, you know, recognised as, as something special and something different. There's that element, but there's also the, the, the practical, pragmatic, if you will, element of it's really difficult to amend the Constitution. And it wasn't intended to be, a, you know, set in stone, but that's one of the consequences of making the amendment process so difficult. People don't like doing it, it's very hard to get the amendment through, um, and so what eventually happens is over the course of a couple decades, which turn into, you know, only a couple hundred years, but still, um, you have this document that hasn't been amended very much, hasn't really been touched, and people do start to think of it as sacred. Okay, so I did have one final question, but unfortunately we seem to have run out of time given how long the debates have gone on here. Um, so I'd just like to thank you both for joining us, especially you, Jane, for taking time out. Uh, I, I hope we didn't stretch your vocal cords too much, but you, to, hide, to hide our expertise, our lack thereof, sorry. Um, just a reminder for those of you listening, that you, con- you can contact us on Twitter at AH2Podcast, that's A-H-T-O-O Podcast and on email at h 2 atoutlookcom We'll be back in two weeks with a discussion of the endlessly interesting and utterly scandalous Andrew Jackson. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.